This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 1967. I'm Justin Cox, and I'm here with Ryan Page. Ryan, how's it going? Is the uh, is the acid hitting yet? Uh, the the van is leaving the the train station. I don't know why it's a, at the train station, but we're we we're headed out on the magical mystery tour that is 1967. Sounds like the acid is indeed hitting. <laughs> I timed this perfectly. <laughs> um, all right. So, what do we have this year? Um, we we have the first real battle royale on our hands we we have we've been waiting for this our entire lives but specifically the past three episodes and i feel like these two bands in my opinion have never been closer um so we have from the beatles the legendary sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band uh magical mystery tour and then they also released the um greatest single double side of all time strawberry fields and penny lane um maybe no they definitely released it maybe it's greatest of all time and the, real, real quick before you go to rolling stones what's the song we didn't acknowledge last year for the beatles um we we forgot to mention um paperback writer in 1966 which is uh sad to me and um, because i was arguing for the beatles last year and that is probably one of one of if not the top five beatles songs for me um, and so apologies and I'm, I'm throwing you a bone and le- letting you have paperback writer this year as well. And, uh, the Rolling Stones put out between the buttons and, um, their satanic majesty's request. Um, and, and so a, a lot to chew on this year between the buttons once again, um, has slightly different songs between the American and the UK release. So um, we won't have to spend a ton of time on that, but the, the main difference being that the, the, the U S version has let's spend the night together, um, which I feel like is a massive hole um, on the UK version and the UK version. Well, the UK version also doesn't have Ruby Tuesday. It's a really what? UK version. What are they doing? That's insane. I don't. I, I didn't don't know that. Yeah. Um, the the UK version <laughs> seems really bare uh, in comparison. It does to make up for those two things. It does have Backstreet Girl 
um which That's is a good one it's a good one it's not in the same tier i don't know Let, let's spend the night together and ruby tuesday that's uh american exceptionalism right there i i yeah i I, I couldn't quite tell you the, the the reasons for those decisions or whatever. And then these all sort of, um, the, all of the songs that weren't released on this one or they never got released on that one or whatever, they also came out in this year um, under the album Flowers. So that also has Ruby Tuesday and Let's Spend the Night Together on it. It has a couple of songs that appeared in, in 66. So Mother's a Little Helper, Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby, um, and Lady Jane, Out of Time. So that album um, is kind of a nice little, I don't know if it's a compilation album. It, it, it definitely takes the songs from a couple of different places and puts them on one neat package. Um, so I don't know if we're going to talk about Flowers very much, but uh, these songs are all sort of on the table for them. But I, to, to me, the between the buttons and their satanic majesty's request are, are the two biggies. Yeah. My, my experience listening this week was it's weird because I always liked between the buttons, but something about the, this little context we created for ourselves, the way we're discussing these things, mm -hmm. it almost seems like the big giant um, kind of like gravitational pull of, of Sergeant Pepper's lonely hearts club band makes me focus on satanic majesties way more than i focused on between the buttons even though between the buttons is probably is more beloved i would say i mean I, th I think you like my impression in leading up to this conversation is that you like satanic majesties more than the average person but between the buttons felt like a, a thing that happened at the beginning of the year and then shit got all psychedelic after that and it's it's just impossible for my head to not go to that spot as 1967 goes on yeah, I agree that it. When thinking about this, it, it was hard not to just compare directly compare that and Sergeant Pepper's. And I'll give you well, my experience was sort of experiencing this year, or, or what ended up happening was that I basically um, I knew that I already liked their Satanic Majesties, but I listened to Sergeant Pepper's, I listened to Magical Mystery Tour, I listened to Between the Buttons once each and then i spent the rest of the time listening to their satanic majesty's requests over and over and over again so and yeah. then i went on the internet and found out much to my chagrin that keith richards and mick jagger have disavowed that record <laughs> they called it a bunch of bullshit yeah it's, it's i i i kind of want to make i, I want to let you have the first crack at talking about that album but I, I rode a little bit of a roller coaster with that album this week, honestly. Um, so you tell me, I guess what I'll talk about is my initial perception of it. I got super into the Rolling Stones during this certain period of my life. And that involved some of the early songs, but really uh, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile, all that stuff. And so this exists like right before that. And I heard it and I just remember like, I just remember sort of dismissing it and um, I don't know. So, but I, I have the chance to go back to it has, I have way more nuanced opinions about it now. What's your, what's, what's your relationship with that album? Spe specifically my specific story with it. I, th I mentioned this on one of the early episodes. That I'm at, uh, the only reason maybe that I would have been more familiar with it than you before now is that I'm a big fan of the Brian Jonestown Massacre who are heavily, heavily influenced by the Rolling Stones. 
and they have an album called Their Satanic Majesty's Second Request, um, which is a sort of homage um, to this album. And so being a fan of that band, it kind of pushed me into, you know, oh, okay, well, I need to check out what this is referencing. And so I was aware of it. I knew some of these songs. Um, I think I was aware of it more in the sense of a kind of mixed CD where I think I listened to it like once and then kind of picked out the songs that I sort of liked. And so this past, you know, couple of weeks has really been my first experience of, of sitting down with it all together as a piece and listening to it all together again and again and again. And um, I don't know that's the greatest album of all time. I mean, it's definitely not the greatest album of all time. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, d- I do know that it's not. I, I, I think it, Weirdly, the criticism that people seem to have of it, or the main thing that you read about, besides the fact that it's some of it is just a lot of psychedelic horse shit, is that it's a, a ripoff of Sgt. Pepper's. And <laughs> I think the the album cover certainly speaks to that or inspired some of that criticism. I don't think it sounds like Sgt. Pepper's at all. I think it doesn't really sound like anything at all. I think it sounds like a totally unique album. Uh, and I, I can't think of any other album that really sounds like this. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they, the, it, they, they did their own, they dug their own grave with this, with what they did to this album, which is look like that on the cover mm-hmm. six, seven months after the Beatles put out Sgt. Pepper's call it their satanic majesty's request, right? Six months after the, the Beatles put out Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which I know those things aren't saying the same thing, but they're they're of the same sort of approach to naming an album. It's um, certainly a departure from Between the Buttons or Aftermath that certainly feels in the direction of Sgt. Pepper. Exactly. You've got, you've got uh, the Beatles starting Sgt. Pepper's with the the title track and then sort of having like a modified version of it that comes up later and the Rolling Stones do sing this all together. And then midway through the album do sing this all together parentheses, see what happens again. It's uh, I mean, they're basically asking to be called derivative with the way they present this album. Okay. So here's my, here's my argument and I won't deny anything that you just said, but my, my argument to that specific criticism, I have two specific arguments. One is, uh, if you're going to call their Satanic Majesty's request derivative of Sgt. Pepper's, then you have to acknowledge Pet Sounds, which came out in 1966, which to me very much is in the conversation for the greatest album of all time. And so if you're going to, if you're going to, uh, demerit their satanic majesty's request for being derivative you have to do the same thing as sergeant peppers for pet sounds you don't have pet sounds you definitely have no um sergeant peppers and i think pet sounds blows both of these albums way out of the water yeah both Um, of these i all let's let's find that moment to hug each other and 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 agree like both of these albums bow down to to pet sounds it's kind of blew my mind that it's a whole year earlier than Sgt. Pepper's. Like I assumed it was like, cause you hear about these albums all together. They're kind of like of a moment, but like, Jesus Christ, if Sgt. Pepper's is revolutionary, Pet Sounds is, is insane. Pet Sounds is a month before Revolver. 
Yeah, it, it's almost like it took them that much longer to synthesize it and try to come up with something uh, to match it. My, my second argument is that uh, accepting, okay, let's say this is derivative. Um, derivative doesn't mean that something can't be better. And my, my example of this was, is specifically from a song from Sgt. Pepper's. Uh, the song is a little help from my friends. What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? And my argument is that that song was later covered by Joe Cocker. To much greater success than the Beatles version, I think the Joe Cocker version of that song uh, is way better than the original Beatles version, and nothing could be more derivative than a cover. So, uh, being derivative isn't always a bad thing if you come up with something uh, great or good. And so, that those are my two arguments against yeah. the, the derivative accusations. That's pretty airtight. That's hard. That's I don't uh, know. How do you how do you feel about that it's song? A, specifically? It's a li- that's a little bit of uh like what about ism. Um, yes, <laughs> totally. but, but it's impossible to argue with. I mean, um, Joe Cocker version of with a little help from my friends is insanely good. It's so it's definitely better. And I like Ringo's version with with a little help from my friends. But there ain't, there's no doubt that that yeah they that's better do you think that that song I, i'm kind of jumping back and forth here but but i want to talk about that song specifically because it's a very famous song I, I i love that song do you think that beatles made that intentionally sort of uh monosyllabic or just kind of not dynamic like, i think ringo's only... delivery is so like flat I think we only think of Ringo's delivery as monosyllabic and flat because Joe Cocker's version exists. And it's like the polar opposite of that. It's like pure id, just a guy going out of his mind. Cause if you really think about it, that's, that's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not here to, to slander Ringo like you are. Um, like you oh, I'm not using... slandering. I'm just, <laughs> just acknowledging that the, the, I, I, I like the Ringo version too. I know. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to, like, I'm just, <laughs> Just trying to make you feel like an ass. But, uh, I'm certainly, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, most Ringo songs are like that. You know, that's this one is no less like that than a lot of Ringo songs. They're 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 a little more direct and on the on the four count with their melody and and words and everything. And then that Joe Cocker one is just a pure. That's a guy basically like like having an epileptic seizure on stage and and and, and blurting it all out. I, I so a while back I uh, I was watching old episodes of SNL because I'm a weirdo and a loser like that uh, from the 70s and I watched one with the Joe Cocker performance um, where him and John Belushi John Belushi performs with him as Joe Cocker which is amazing and I, I started typing a question into Google and I typed in what's wrong and it auto filled in with Joe Cocker. <laughs> <laughs> 
That okay. was like your predictive Google text. Yeah, Google Google knew exactly what I was about to ask, mm. and I'm not the first person to Google that. Um, oh my god! Which there's nothing wrong with Joe Cocker. That's just that's just how he performs. The other thing, before we get away from, with a little help from my friends, that I I I I'm confounded by one of the reasons the Joe Cocker version is better to me is the simple changing of the line to, "What would you do if I sang out of tune?" Why would the Beatles have the line be, what would you think if I sang out of tune? It seems like such an obvious rhyme. That's really true. Honestly, I didn't, I, I probably, God, I don't, I, I didn't even consciously know that that was the case. And I've been listening to it this whole week. I, so there's something that's always driven me crazy. Uh, back to, back to satanic majesties. Okay. So I've, I've made my like, point about it being derivative honestly it to me to me change that title change that cover strip away a little bit of the like masturbatory psychedelic uh let's do like shoehorn some weird stuff in here and it's really not that crazy of a departure from what the rolling stones do it's different for sure and all that stuff i just talked about is is uh that's all pretty substantial like but I just like you, I'm not going to lie about it. I listened to this album like crazy this week. And I think, I think it's because I had sort of low expectations of it. Um, I listened to 2000 man and she's a rainbow and the lantern and Citadel and sing this all together a bunch. Like, and, and, and really that's almost half the album. And you no, know, I know we're here to argue and like, talk shit out but i honestly i kind of can't even explain it yeah i think i think it's a it's a it's sad to say this this sounds bad but like that's a failure in marketing that's a bad that is that is very much like we are making the broke boy knockoff version of this thing that you liked seven months ago that's, and that's that, what it looks like that's that's just like that's red meat for for a music critic to come out and be like Oh my God! the The next best band in the world is making their like rushed into the studio to make their version of this this instant classic. That so looks here's terrible. What I, yeah, here's what I think about that, and here's what I think happened because I have I've had that similar thought. Um, and 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 kind of going back to Pet Sounds, Pet Sounds was not immediately beloved. It was not necessarily hailed as a masterpiece. It took some time. For people to kind of come around to it and it took people like the Beatles really championing it and what I think happened is this album was sort of lost to time because Mick and Keith and the rest of the Rolling Stones didn't stick up for it didn't stand by it and the reason that they didn't or no one cared is because fucking Jumping Jack Flash came out four months later So you go from this, which is very different and, and, and maybe, maybe in the noble failure categories. And then you turn right around to put out jumping Jack flash. And then immediately in 1968, put out beggars banquet and sympathy for the devil. And it's no wonder that people forgot about this album immediately.
Yeah, it makes sense. And but and, then what's and, weird? But then what's weird is that like later than that, and I'm sure this gets to like the like way later to the Brian Jonestown massacre and stuff. But like even as like in in within a decade later, you have Robert Criscow. I think I wrote this down. The Stones would go back to the basics and never wander down these paths again, making it making this all the more fa- of a fascinating anomaly in the group's discography. But basically, speaking positively about it, like the 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 album has grown more favorable in the years. Yeah, without I, the I, help of the of the two leaders of that band, I think that is. I read some contemporary reviews of it and I read a review from John Landau in Rolling Stone where he he praised some of the songs, but overall he really didn't like it and just accused it of being a Sgt. Pepper's ripoff. And I almost wonder, you know, you, you did a great job on your Jackson Brown podcast kind of talking about what people thought in the moment. And I wonder if those critics had known that Jumping Jack Flash and Sticky Fingers and this stuff was coming, if they would have just accepted it for what it was. And maybe people at the time were a little more worried of like, oh, is this is this the Rolling Stones now? Like, yeah, that's true. That's true. Rather than you know, ten years later, fifteen years later, you got to be like, oh, okay, this is just a funky, weird, drug fueled uh, experiment slash maybe kind of lazy slash. You know, I, I I read that part part of the story of this album is that it was extremely rare in any of these sessions for all of the band members to be together recording it. It was almost totally recorded um, at, at, you know, without the full band, which is not unheard of for the Rolling Stones and will happen for them again. But part of that was that some of them were in and out of jail for drug possession charges, (laughs) things like that. So that's part of the story too. Stuff that should actually just make the album even cooler than it already is really. Yeah, I, I just there's some kind of weird magic that's on here that is is almost without even trying. And that kind of makes me want to circle back to Sgt. Pepper because to me, everything about Sgt. Pepper feels forced and trying. Here, here's the the you you had to bear this burden last last episode or last year, um, which is that revolver gets held on this pedestal and aftermath just gets to be this scrappy thing with a lot of really cool original stuff that's turned this year sergeant peppers is up on the pedestal and satanic majesties gets to be like this underdog right um and so and the ex the 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 good stuff in between the buttons let's not forget that that's true yeah i know that's true i know um but so sergeant peppers it, it was what I have to cop to is that like you enter into it like, Oh hell yeah, baby. We're in Sergeant Pepper's year. Like this is going to be, this is it. And then you're like, Sergeant Pepper's lonely hearts club band, baby, let's do it. And then you get to, with a little help from my friends, you know, it's coming. It's so like, it's such like a quintessential Beatles moment as those two songs transition, whether it's your cup of tea or not Lucy in the sky with diamonds, obviously iconic. Um, but my i'm i'm like going to be pretty honest with it like you get some you get a good amount of stuff that feels a little filler like like in the middle section of this album this like the ultimate kind of first grand big concept album because they're going like the beatles are going by the name sergeant pepper's lonely arts club band conceivably like that's what you would that's how you would interpret that if you see them all dressed this way and you see that cover and everything um 
But it says and the Beatles on the cover. It it's says the like Beatles. It. it says the Beatles, but they're they're sort of creating they're kind of creating this world or whatever. But then like I don't know how much they said to initially like set that idea in motion or if people just ran with that because there's all these characters on this album. But Lennon later says like Sgt. Pepper is called the first concept album, but it doesn't go anywhere. It works because we said it worked. Like it's that there are a bunch of quirky people like Mr. Kite and Lovely Rita and Lucy in the sky and Sergeant Pepper. But like the idea that these people all hang together and crisscross each other in some like invented um, reality, it's not there. And anyone who wants to try and say it's there is is like connecting dots that don't exist, really. I mean, that's what I've always wondered about that. What is the concept here? That yes, like okay, there's Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart, the, the the song, and you have the reprise at the end of the record. But I, I, you can listen to this album ten times, and the connecting tissue is not immediately obvious. Like the songs, definitely, you know, sound like they should go on the same album. But this isn't Tommy. This isn't a rock opera. Um, it, this isn't Tommy. It doesn't suck. <laughs> Whoa! Shots <laughs> at the who? Um, I'm I'm here for that. I I just I think as far as a con conceptual framework of an entire album, their Satanic Majesty works better on that level. The the songs seem to all be from a kind of similar point of view and attitude. And you know the best example I can give with Sgt. Pepper's is that you have back to back the song "Getting Better." which is, you know, about how someone's life is turning around uh, because they have, since they've met their girl, followed immediately by Fixing a Hole, which is about <laughs> someone being left, which are both sung by Paul McCartney. So it feels a little disjointed in that way. I have to, I hate, I will not use the word overrated because that's a really boring criticism, but I have to imagine in the annals of rock and roll listening that there have been many, many people that have been underwhelmed by this album because its reputation certainly precedes it. And when we were talking about Revolver um, as, you know, well, it could be in contention for the best Beatles album up there with Sgt. Pepper's. I don't think this is the best Beatles album. I don't think this is as good as Hard Day's Night. I think it's better than that. I, but I get it. But I get I get what you're saying. And like when you say getting better to fixing in a hole, think about within you, without you, like Harrison like noodling his heart out on the on the sitar and just like it's basically like the deepest into that kind of psychedelic world they've gone yet. And then you flip directly over to when I'm 64. This is like the most tidy, pretty, cute Paul McCartney song you're gonna get at this point in their career. I was surprised re-listening to this album. I don't think I ever realized how Paul heavy this album is. There is a lot of Paul on this album. Yeah. And to, to me, listening to this with the benefit of hindsight and talking about thinking for forward in the career, I can't help but listen to this album and be like, this is the beginning of the end as far as 
the bad habits of the Beatles and the sort of like some of the annoying things. And I love Paul McCartney. I, I, um, you know, he's, I, I maybe firmly in the Paul camp, um, but he probably has most, the most consistent in creating songs that I like through this whole catalog. When he starts to get his sort of tin pan alley, like tempo where the bass is just going boom, boom, boom. And I know like When I'm 64 is is a beloved song that is, you know, a classic for a lot of people. And I, I like that song. Okay. But that's like one example where it's just like this plodding rhythm back and forth. And it's really kind of cheesy and kind of like carnival-y. And to me, it it works better than some of the future things and some of the like more B-sidey stuff on the White Album and whatnot. But I, I just like see that coming around the corner. How dare you with this is the beginning of the end. It is. <laughs> uh, you, you're a type of person who listens to plenty of music that people would say is annoying or grating or difficult. And uh, the Beatles are good for being people who do things that challenge people. And that's what they do in, especially in the next album with the White Album. You know what's really challenging on this album? The song Good Morning. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I, I, if I'm going a little hard at Sgt. Pepper, it's only because the bar has been set so high by the Beatles and this album just doesn't live up to its reputation. Yeah. Let me hit with some stuff. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band as the opening track it kicks complete ass. It's so good. Yes. It's, it's awesome. Undeniable. With a little help from my friends. Feel how you want to feel about it. It serves its purpose. I actually love Lucy, that song. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Also, it's this is one of those ones, the Beatles do this like no other band does it. And actually, the Rolling Stones will do a lot of this too, like with like Far Away Eyes and stuff like that. They, they've done it before and they do more of it later. But it's kind of this like restrained verses that don't do a lot for you melodically. They're kind of scene setting and then choruses that just like burst open. Like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, it's like you're almost hearing kind of sitar-laden poetry and, and some just really weird, memorable, um, borderline nonsensical stuff. And then you get this <laughs> it's chorus. It's not borderline. <laughs> it's nonsensical, but I don't know. This uh, is another bad habit that has begun earlier, but has reared its ugly head on this album, which is John's quote-unquote psychedelic songs, which the lyrics are just total absolute nonsense in a way that I, I'm, I don't mind nonsense sometimes but they just don't that for me they don't touch me in, in any sort of way they leave me completely cold and this is one of those Beatles songs where it's like maybe in 1967 this was totally revolutionary but it's just really lame to me well then you need to like switch up your acid dealer and like get it on vinyl or something that's about do you know a guy no I don't but... <laughs> I, but when keep it, going, when keep it, going with the track list. When yeah. it when it breaks open with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, just as that chorus, which I know is like, it's a little like directly on the nose to just like your your chorus is basically the title straight out over and over again. It's perfect. It's so good, and I think part of the reason this album is so like massive and has such global reach and so iconic is everything that I've said so far is just really memorable. You know, like that that is. 
yeah. it's kind of I loved something you said about Revolver last last in the last week's one where like you talk about um, Yellow Yellow Submarine. Submarine. It's like however you feel about this, it ain't just kind of like breezing by you and then you don't remember it one minute later. You remember all this stuff and um, the, especially the first three tracks of this album, which it, it really like does that. Well, I'm gonna it, add on, I'm gonna add on to your case, which is that for the past week or so, my son has just to go immediately to the next track. My son has just been walking around the house, going, "Got to admit, getting better, a little better," oh, and just over and over and over and over again. So that song, that song, something like ten years ago was on a a TV commercial. Yeah. And and I googled it, and it's like a flat screen TV, like yeah. probably like when like plasma was like blowing up. And honestly, I I want to die when I hear it. I can't. I cannot do it. And I I don't think it's fault of the song. I feel fine about the song, but that's an example of that being killed. Which, when we swivel back over to uh, um, Satanic Majesties, I'll get to another example of that. That weirdly is the opposite feeling, but. Um, we we also cannot we can't we can't have a podcast go by without just bringing up the the lyrics of getting better which is Paul McCartney I I know it's a concept album they're playing different characters or whatever but saying how he used to be cruel to his woman and beat her and it's just not not good <laughs> I it makes me it makes my skin crawl every time I hear it but I do how remember did- that commercial how did, think, the, how did the Philips Corporation think that was going to move TVs? <laughs> I, I have had many a song ruined for me by commercials. I think I've managed to, to pull that one away from, from that, that horrible corporate feeling. But yeah, that, that sucks. I think that the there's like a middle period of this album. Like I, I, I'm unoffended by, I like fixing, fixing a hole and she's leaving home, but I don't love them. You know, like I, I really like them, but yeah. I'm, I'm not here to say much more beyond that. I find, I find songs like being for the benefit of Mr. Kite and lovely Rita to be like, they, they do fit this world to me. I see that cover. These are people in it. Whether these are the types of songs I would love, they, they are Sergeant Pepper's songs, you know, um, within you, without you, we're in like primo 1967 psychedelia, Harrison noodle away. We absolutely mm. love you and adore you. Um, <laughs> when I'm 64 is, is this when I'm 64 almost feels like Paul had a song tucked away in a notebook from three years earlier. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this one. I can't do it. I want to, I, I want to say about, Mr. Kite, which I feel like you just dismissively last last episode just crapped on Dr. Roberts, and that's how I feel about this song. Similar to the Rolling Stones at the last song, what is with the sort of circus theme <laughs> or something with these like British guys in the 60s? Like there's some weird circus fascination that I just don't get at all. Yeah. Our our guest today is also anti-kite. Yeah, not a fan. This is just a weird, like, it's John Lennon just almost is like, yeah, listening to the sky. That's that's a classic song. But other than that, it, until you get to a day in the life, it's like, where are you, John Lennon? Yeah, bro, we're we're building what? up to a day in the life. That's that's what we're doing. I mean, we're basically riding a very slow rising ramp to a day in the life. Um, 
not yeah. not unlike not unlike uh like three years of um GameStop stock. It's like riding, <laughs> it's riding a nice little low steady crescendo, and then you're gonna hit um the last song on the the second side of Sgt. Pepper's and that's a day in the life. A day in the life is like top three Beatles songs, I'd say. Um A Day in the Life is amazing and it kind of we're going to get in a minute to Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, which are not on this album, but are part of this year. A Day in the Life is is essentially a masterpiece. It's a five minute, 38 second masterpiece that is equal parts, not equal parts. I guess John Lennon kind of anchors it, but you you get, really get to hear both people. Um, where do you land on A Day in the Life? I mean, I love it. I don't know if I put it in my top three. I don't know if it means quite as much to me as it sounds like it means to you, but I, I think it's a great song. It it doesn't ever really get old. The kind of car crashy stuff at the end gets a little tired to me. Like if after a, a while, I, I just kind of want to listen to <laughs> the song part of it and not so much the the freak out like 1960s, like, whoa, can you believe that, they put this on a record? By that, do you mean like the stuff at the very, very end or the like symphony kind of crescendoing up into madness? Yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that, that's like a minor quibble. I, I still think it's, yeah, I, I'll agree with the, the term masterpiece. To me, to me, that stuff, all right, no no one's going to think that that process of a big room, like a, a full room of live, like string musicians, all moving up their fretboard and getting louder so that it switches from one part to a totally distinct part in a song is like, specifically pleasing to the ear but it is cool as hell and the idea that I, I think that they recorded those things separate and left that gap in there and then plugged that into it it's just cool like that that's just that to me like you talk about like this album is like a weird album it's a psychedelic weird album and you can you can lob some accusations at part parts of that being like a contrived version of a weird album doing that with like a, a a big room of string musicians is weird but to me is so cool and is so the, the things they give you before it and after it are so good and so pleasing and so interesting that that bridge interlude whatever that is that that you get twice is just like hell yeah give it to me i want i, it. I agree it works yeah and it's, it's cool Lennon's vocals are just so perfect. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who Again, getting back into the bad habits that begin developing, is this his prime John Lennon self-hating his own voice? And so every song with Lennon on it has to have some kind of effect or something on his voice? Um, which we love your voice, John. You don't need to do that. You sound great. Um, is that even, is that an interpretation by you, or is that like a documented thing that he felt that way? No, that is um, a, a, a well documented thing that he was always going to the producer on these records um, or the engineer and and trying to find ways to either put some distortion on his voice or, or double it up or echo it or something like that um, because he he did not. It's my understanding from from my whatever vague recollection of Beatles history is that he he, you know, it's hard to say someone like John Lennon didn't have 
a certain amount of self-confidence, but I think that is pretty well documented that he um, at times was trying to find ways to make his voice sound better or hide it or whatever. I think his voice sounds super cool in this. And I know, I know something that's extremely well documented is the albums are lift or that the lyrics are lifted from like a, and uh, the daily mail, like these are news stories that he's sort of like turning into poetry. Hmm. And it's like the idea that this is a song called a day in the life. And that's like pulled from an issue of a newspaper. And then you have this part where McCartney comes in later that is, it's not pulled from that newspaper. It's, what feels like a person waking up for a day in their life. Mm-hmm. I don't know how independent, I mean, I'm, I assume these were very independently written, but I don't know how, like, how I, I just, you just want to be in the room for how these two separate things come together and become this song. It's the coolest shit. Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Yeah, and that I, I just think that the story of a day in the life is that it works. Everything that you're trying to do it works. I want to contrast what you just said about these kind of two different parts to the song getting better, which to me sounds like a classic example of someone putting two different songs together and just making one song, the verse and the other song, the chorus, even though I really like getting better and it's like a catchy memorable tune. I think it suffers from that because it just doesn't, the the verse and the chorus don't quite fit together. They, to me, they, they just kind of sound like, Paul McCartney threw two different songs together. We're in a day in a life. They sound completely different and it just totally works. I, I don't know if there's a reason why. If you had to pick your favorite, what would you pick? Uh, Lennon part or McCartney part? Definitely the Lennon part on this song. Um, I think that Paul part, again, is is a little bit more of that. I, I, don't, I don't know. M- more stock uh, Paul McCartney or is the Lennon I, I, I don't know where it comes from it, it just it it's so pure and, and iconoclastic and just his singing his the melody quality of the recording it's all great one of the things I wanted to say or that you brought up is that when we were coming into this year I, I was fully prepared to like throw down the gauntlet I really wanted to bash some heads and I was really gonna make a full throated defense that the Rolling Stones won this year um, you know, screw Sergeant Pepper's blah blah, and then I was like, "Wait, the Beatles released the Strawberry Fields Penny Lane single this year? Damn it!" Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Penny Lane, there is a barbershop. There's there's no way like, okay, maybe, maybe if I wanted to like have like a TKO, I could, I could convince someone that, you know, satanic majesties has some like dark magic stuff going on that just like uh, propels it past. But when you, when you have, when you just drop that along with the other, like magical mystery tour is a really weird thing, but that also has some classic, great songs on there hello goodbye you know baby you're a rich man gets thrown on there when you when you kind of have the weird sort of compilation version of it all yeah and and at that point i'm just i just like okay what what am i doing like it's a <laughs> it's a it's an it's a noble cause to take on arguing for the rolling stones on this and honestly i found way more sympathy for it 
in this year than I did in some of those early Beatles years where it was like the Beatles putting out two of the biggest albums in the world and the Rolling Stones with like a four song EP, you know, like, of course, I have no sympathy for that. The idea that like, to me, I haven't brought up Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields much yet because like, I'm, I'm interested in this conversation comparing these two albums and talking about Between the Buttons and Magical Mystery Tour, but like that uh, Penny Lane strawberry fields like basically double a side thing is just like the slam dunk you throw down at the end like yo dude get out of here what are you talking about yeah that is the trump card absolutely and i think even going back i, I don't i don't know if this is fair or whatever part of the reason i don't like lucy in the sky with diamonds that much is because i just wish it was strawberry fields i just think strawberry fields is like the version of that song that's better I like I get that that's like a version of that song that that's that's better, but I don't think Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is one of the two worst songs on this album. No. What would be what would be the two songs you bump from Sgt. Pepper's and sub with those? Well, I mean, I don't know that you need to. I know you don't need to. The idea we have of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band as this like all-time album, my experience with it this week is that of course it's amazing and of course it's memorable and of course it's like trailblazing unique but it kind of if you enter into it with that idea it doesn't deliver on that and i think that honestly if those two songs were on it in place of a couple of songs it is that those two songs are insane i could do without the whole b-side of sergeant peppers to be honest like there's some songs i like on that okay but the, the a side to me is is song for song great um and the the whole pretty much the whole b-side minus a day in the life obviously kind of forgettable to me um and so i I don't know if it'd be too i would definitely get rid of good morning um and and honestly like yeah i'd probably get rid of good morning and mr kite although i don't love lovely rita either but yeah i don't know that you need to because they didn't feel the need to they they just felt like okay cool we're just gonna release the greatest like single of all time which which of those like in your brain is the A side and which is the B side? I feel like Penny Lane is such a it, it's kind of the same thing you're talking about with a day in the life where it's like it, it maybe doesn't transition as smoothly as that, but it's such a perfect kind of counterpoint to Strawberry Fields. I think it works better as as the as a B side, even though yeah. I think it's just as good of a song. I am here with Elizabeth Nelson, who is the host of the Looking for the Magic podcast with Amy Rigby. She's also singer and songwriter behind the DC garage punk band, The Paranoid Style. She also drops these kind of tweet length bits of uh, music criticism and that I absolutely love on Twitter. And I don't know if you do that with some kind of like set frequency or just when they hit you, but um, they're directly up my alley and I'm super excited to have her on this show. How's it going? It's wonderful to be here, and it's certainly a thrill. Pretty wild year for these two bands, Beatles or Stones. Who do you got? Uh, so for the year 1967, um, I think I would be labeled a transparent lunatic to pick any band other than the Beatles. They have a complete home field advantage. This is the high era of psychedelia. And I mean, they basically invented the genre. So in my heart and my mind, I think that they almost can't not win. Um, But then I went back and spent some time with the Stones over the last few days after you asked me to do this. And I mean, they lose. They are 
playing a road game against the 72 Dolphins and the 80s Islanders and like the Yankees in any decade. And um, I think they're stretching themselves and getting away from the blues uh, to try and chase this psych trend almost kind of cynically. Um, so they really can't win against the Beatles who you know, have more or less, as I said, invented this genre. Um, so they are definitely not like the better band or the winning band, but I do think that they might have some more interesting results. And I think that that might be an interesting sort of qualitative distinction to explore as we think about the records. I think we have to kind of just acknowledge Sgt. Pepper's for what it is. Um, it's a transporting work of imagination. Um, and I feel like it has been kicked around as maybe being the best rock and roll record or certainly in that conversation when invariably those lists come up. I mean, there was one that Rolling Stone put out. I can't remember where they placed. I wasn't asked to vote, so I ignored it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like, and, and I think like some people think it's like literally the best record ever made. So, you know, as I say, it's like, this is, you know, kind of the album of 1967. And it's a huge achievement for the Beatles. And I, I personally love the record. I think that A Day in the Life is an, uh, you know, unqualified masterpiece, but I also feel like let's deflate the balloon, the hyperbole balloon a little bit. Um, because I feel like, there's a lot of swings on this record that are misses. And this is just my opinion. So please nobody at me when I say this, but like there are songs on that record that I think just kind of do not track for me. And I'm often shocked when somebody who isn't eight years old is like, when I'm 64 is my favorite song on Sgt. Pepper's because <laughs> for me, I'm like, oh, no, thank you. Or like the, the excitement of the title track that kicks off the first side and then that like Billy Shears and then it goes into um, I get by with a little help from my friends like that is like the saddest part of the record for me because like this huge exciting lead up and then this just you know like boo bummer hang of a song you know Ringo singing and I know people love That's it you know, that is my opinion. What's my so funny, opinion. what's so funny about that is the co-host Ryan told a story about how he threw the album on and clicked the first song and had it on shuffle. And so it's this weird, like, it's not that I want with a little help from my friends next, yeah. but the fact that it didn't give it was like very disorienting. Like that's what it's supposed to do right here. It's supposed to go. I know, I know. That, that, that's really funny. I haven't really ever thought about not like listening to the record sequentially. And, but it's almost as if like, I'm just stealing myself for the letdown of Ringo's voice just kicking in on that stupid song. Um, but again, you know, it's like, it all kind of hangs together and it's a masterpiece. So again, I, I, I love the record, I love the record. And then like, you know, it's funny to think about how this is an era, um, and I'm sure you guys talk about this a lot where it's like, the market was basically driven by singles. So they often left some of the best material off of the LP. And in this case, you get the um, Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane 45. And that was another one on the list of records that you wanted to talk about. And I often think about resequencing Sgt. Pepper's, which I know is probably, um, you know, like not a popular opinion, but like slot in Strawberry Fields for being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. And all of a sudden this record becomes a lot more interesting um, and, and certainly a different experience sonically. So, um, but 
I can't deny that those two songs are not great in their own right, uh, which again, kind of puts like another check mark in the W column for the Beatles. And then I guess Magical Mystery Tour is fine. Um, you know, it's kind of a grab bag. There was like a prompt on the internet um, the other day where somebody was asking for like albums with really weak A sides and totally strong B sides. And um, so, um, Magical Mystery Tour was one that came up and I actually thought that that was a pretty good contender because I do think that the back half of that record um, is pretty spectacular and then the A side is just kind of hit or miss. Um, and so yeah, so they are like my definitive pick, but I think it would be fun to kind of think about what the Stones are doing yeah. right now. Um, I like something you said about um, they're, they're sort of the away team. They're playing, the Beatles have the home field advantage. You can almost see the Beatles have basically had the home field advantage all the way up to this point, right? It's like only in the next couple of years that it becomes like, like neutral field or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and I won't, I won't step on anybody's toes who gets the next couple of years, but I think, you know, that's, that's where it might get, you know, sort of more interesting is this sort of kind of equalizes a bit. But yeah, I mean, I, I actually think that the Stones had a pretty good year in 1967. Um, you know, they put out um, Between the Buttons, which I think is actually a pretty remarkably effervescent record for the Stones at this point. Um, and it actually sounds like they sort of channeled that light feeling of Rubber Soul, um, but actually kind of revved it up a little bit. And like, there's some really awesome songs on that. I think like Connection is one of my favorite songs I actually you know, this is this is disgusting, but I actually tweeted about connection if you're interested um, in checking out that. Um, <laughs> you didn't you didn't you didn't want to say that sentence out loud, but uh. <laughs> let's just say it's like how fucking lame is that? Like I oh, you know, I, I tweeted about connection. Uh, but I, I do think it's a it's a great song about, you know, uh love is refracted through the idea of a you know a drug deal. Um and then like let's spend the night together is just a killer single. And I, I think um as like stupid single entendre songs go, this one might be the best in the genre. Like um, Ed Sullivan made them change the lyric when they performed to let's spend some time together, which did literally nothing to change exactly what they were talking about. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's like Between the Buttons is a lot of fun. It's short um, and it feels like a forerunner to Get Happy, which is a record that I love, Elvis Costello's Get Happy. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I just think that, and I, I mean, I guess, you know, critics have now sort of come around to saying like Between the Buttons is, is really good, probably a top 10 Stones record. Um, and then we have their satanic, their satanic Majesty's Request, um, which I thought it would be sort of interesting to discuss as kind of this remarkable inversion of Sgt. Pepper's, where it's like Sgt. Pepper's, you have this collection of songs, most of which are like dyed in the wall standards. And then you have their Satanic Majesty's Request and, um, and I, as I say, you know, they're sort of trying to cynically capitalize on what the Beatles are doing. So if you think about it as this kind of weird mirror image of Sgt. Pepper's, like, 
it's it's a critical failure of an album but it actually has like four really good songs on it and so Sgt. Peppers is a great great record and history has been very kind to it and all it, it's you know this critical darling it's everybody's favorite record it might be the best record ever um but as I say there's some there's some like not great songs on there there is some some kind of filler that I again personally just feel like you know, it's not their strongest material. And then on the other side, you've got their Satanic Majesty's Request, which I think, you know, has been sort of healed over time by critics, but still is kind of considered sort of like a, a B minus sort of stones effort, maybe a C plus. And, you know, it's got ridiculous cover and there's a lot of material on there that sounds dated, but there's also like some really, really strong material. So I actually think like when we think about 1967, yes, the Beatles win, but they were both putting out some of their best and their worst songs. And so I think that, you know, we should be um, sort of thoughtful about how we consider um, what the Stones were doing. Um, because as I say, I, I think like the songs that I had identified as, as being great on that record on Satanic Majesties is um, 2000 Man, 2000 Light Years From Home, She's a Rainbow, and The Lantern, all of them. Stone Cold Absolutely. Classics. So, and I, I think that's some of their best material. And so I, I don't think that we can just discount the fact that, yeah, they were going in, they wanted to trend chase, but what, what would have happened if they had gone the space rock route instead of, you know, doing the blues thing. And as you know, you, you brought this up, like things are about to change. Like, let's see what happens in 1968 when the Beatles try to strip it back. I'll be very interested to see how you how that matches up with the Stones who are doing that very well. And I also just think that Stones trend chasing cynically, okay, that's kind of lame, but you know, like they are adaptable and they have they do lots of different genre experiments. And I think that's really cool for a band. And obviously, I mean, tragedies aside, they're still together. And um, you know, the Beatles broke up pretty shortly after you know it it speaks to how much we orient these things in our mind as like our ideas of them like basically what you describe is like i put on sergeant peppers this quote unquote masterpiece album and realize there are some songs on here that are really not much for me at all or and then i put on satanic majesty's request this thing that came out like six months later and looks like a knockoff version of the other one and learned oh wait this has like four or five amazing songs on it and it's like it's like that all speaks to like the starting point of the listening process, right? And the sort of realizations you have through it. I think that's a cool way to put it. I, I, I can't even imagine like trying to put out three records in a year or, you know, whatever their insane amount of output was. I mean, I, what did they take? Four whole months to do Sergeant Peppers? I mean, like that was considered just so extravagant and indulgent or, I mean, like it was, I, I think maybe it was like six months or something, but they were, you know, doing these things in like a day. Um, so they're, they're all geniuses and they're, they're all winners in my heart, but I definitely think we have to just kind of give it to the Beatles this time. Sorry, Mick. Sorry, Keith. They'll, they'll be all right. Sorry, Brian. Well, I, I'm like psyched because it's like, okay, so now, now they've won, but, but you know, what happens next year? I know. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, um, it was super cool talking to you about this. I love uh, reading your thoughts about music and it was fun to, to hear them in this way. Where can people find you on uh, all that stuff that you think sucks that you don't want to plug, but should anyway? Uh, 
yeah, no, no, please, um, please check out my connection tweet. Um, I am at Paranoiacs. Uh, my band is the Paranoid Style. We're on the Barn on Records label. Um, we are on all of the streaming sites and Bandcamp. And um, the podcast is looking for the magic. We record live 6.30 Wednesdays on YouTube. And then you can find that on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And then if you want to do like some deep Googling, you can probably find my Instagram and um, Facebook and, uh, you know, probably several email addresses, um, social security number and uh, mailing address and, um, you know, where my parents live and all that kind of stuff. So I'll leave that to, um, you know, your more industrious listeners. But this was super fun. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. I'm so glad I got 67. I was initially sort of like, ah, oh, man, I should have taken White Album. But actually, this was actually more fun because um, I got to go back and, and check out these Stones records that I sometimes um, pass over for some of their other material. So that has been my experience this week as well. So mm-hmm. thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks, Justin. I've got a feeling, a feeling made that Jackson Brown podcast because I kind of like in a way that felt unique to me like really identified with that music and felt a little like I had my people I shared that with but it was a little more of a solo experience whereas you just kind of bump into these Beatles and Rolling Stones songs through your life they're there they're like hemmed into the culture and you're gonna encounter them and I've had the same thing it's like we're going through every single one of these albums and like we're not even at the like prime of the Rolling Stones yet And there's so many experiences that I have with all this music. And I was born in 1983. These bands were like 15 years beyond the stuff we're talking about then. Yeah. And you know, that, that also makes me think, I I don't know if you're this way at all. When I, when I listen to music, I I have like a strong visual association with it usually. And I I just music, the combination of music and like moving images is such a powerful storytelling device and one of the reasons why i frequently find myself drawn to the rolling stones is just for whatever reason their music seems to be more cinematic i I feel like the number of songs that we've listened to already that have been featured in movies and very memorable scenes of movies versus the beatles songs and i don't know if that has something to do with the the cost of the beatles songs the rights if they're like prohibitively expensive or maybe the rolling stones I mean, they're certainly not known to be people who don't love money. But anyways, I, I say this to mention, have you ever seen the movie Bottle Rocket? Yeah. The Wes Anderson's first movie. And yep. th- there's a scene at the end of the movie with that song, 2000 Man. And it's so perfect. Um, and and I I love that song. And, and yet I can't ever listen to it and not see young Owen Wilson's face in like slow motion. Well, my name is I need to watch it again because I think I I probably watched it then at my like and 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 he has a lot of like kind of music hits like that in those early movies like he mm-hmm. he, he pulls some pretty good like yeah music from this era and like Bowie songs Rolling Stone songs Nick Drake songs and stuff like that Two Thousand Man has is the one that got me that song is insanely good I love it I love like 
just the, the whole first part of the song and then what it breaks into. And then as it goes back to that song, that song's a, a it's like everything you're saying about the Beatles being like, all right, they wanted to make this thing and they just like lined up all their cards and made this like perfect Beatles version of it. 2000 Man is the Rolling Stones doing the like, all right, we're pretty high. Some of us are in and out of jail and here's our version of it. And 2000 Man is so good. And I also think this goes back to, though, what is the concept of Sgt. Pepper's? Like, if you want to say it's, oh, they're, they're this band that is the Sgt. Like, what does that mean? What is, what is the, I feel like their Satanic Majesty has a much more specific through line of this sort of cosmic, um, it's like a combination of things like cosmic and, and outer spacey with like being medieval yet futuristic. And it all feels like even if the lyrics, you know, aren't like telling a specific story from start to finish, they, they all feel like they, they fit together. And so 2000 Man, I feel like really plays into that and really kind of sets a certain tone for the album. And I don't know, I, I just love that song. It's, it's one of my I mean, favorite songs. They have two songs with the word 2000 in it and stuff, but I disagree with that. Like, the I don't I don't think... That thing, that thing doesn't all hang together thematically to me. Yeah, maybe not. I'm, but, I mean, but they also, but they also aren't trying as hard, so you're not, you're not going to hold them to it. As I much. don't know, it's thematically so much as it is like sonically. It, you know, yeah, that's they, true. they're not jumping like there's a, when you have on Sgt. Pepper's a song like "When I'm 64," and even with a little help from my friends, which is a great song. Like th- those don't. Those don't go with some of those other songs, or at least they they don't feel like they do. Um, and and if you didn't tell someone that Sgt. Pepper's was a concept album, I don't think that people would think of it that way. Whereas Satanic Majesties, I feel like you can pretty much put that on from start to finish, and it 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 all just kind of flows into each other. Now maybe that's unintentional. Maybe that's just me enjoying it more so than apparently Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, which is a a great disappointment to me, (laughs) but, but that, that's, that's kind of how I feel about it after, after a week of listening to it. Like you take it like song by song, you know, there's just mega hits on Sgt. Pepper's that it's going to be hard to contend with. Well, before I want to go back to, I want to come back to, to Satanic Majesties a little more, some like specific songs on it, but the a quick a quick final Beatles thing is I do think that they get some credit for John Lennon like saying this I mean we told people this was a concept album and they ate it up and you know it's really not it's like they basically he basically cops to it and then this thing that I read that is just like some good like real like demented john lennon stuff which is at the end of the day in the at at the end of a day in the life a 15 kilohertz high frequency tone is heard and it was added at john lennon's suggestion with the intention that it would annoy dogs (laughs) i love that i mean i'm so that is my favorite aspect of john lennon or whatever his just sort of he, he he doesn't seem to have any very many illusions about a lot of this stuff. And maybe that was opposed in its own way. And, and his sort of cynicism definitely like can rub people the wrong way. But 
I I appreciate the fact that he he maybe that goes back to speaking to his own sort of self-loathing or you know not liking the sound of his own voice but he it never felt like john lennon was like blowing smoke up his own ass nope he just he's saying whatever all right so to to the point of of uh satanic majesties i i will say like i i listened to that album more than any other album this this week at leading up to this i listened to it constantly i walked around my house singing 2000 man and she's a rainbow and citadel and the lantern i I listened to it a ton i loved it um i'll let i'll talk a little more about those specific tracks in a second but something i wondered going in since it was sort of like an album that that was a little bit panned and panned by the the leaders of that band and everything is I wondered, so the Rolling, like the Beatles have that one album, right? Which is all number one hits by the Beatles. Right. And the Rolling Stones equivalent is, is called 40 Licks. And I wondered like, did this album have, I thought maybe like this album has no songs on 40 Licks, but it does. Do you have any guess what's on there? Um, I would guess She's a Rainbow is on there. Um, and then... You got how, it right. Will you tell that's me how many, is that the that's only all, one? That's all that's on there, yeah. So I, I, I think in, I, this is a classic example, and we've talked a lot about what, undertaking this podcast and how much research do we want to do, and do we want to know every single thing about these bands, or do we just want it to be the two of us sort of talking and coming at it from where we are? And this is a perfect example of, like, I wish I had never wikipedia this album. I would, I would, I would be so much happier in my blissful ignorance of just like, yeah, this is a crazy psychedelic album the Rolling Stones made. Some of it doesn't work. A lot of it is is fucking awesome. Um, and and something about just knowing that they they themselves felt that it was haphazard and kind of lazy um, is is disappointing to me. Going back to that idea of experimentation, there's a lot of weird sounds and instruments on this record. And there are times when it doesn't work or it's just, you know, grading. But for the most part, it does work. And and like take that song Citadel, where there's just in, in the chorus, there's I, I don't know what instrument it is. It just sounds like a, a bell ringing or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? That to me is so cool because when you listen to a lot of music and then when you try to learn to play music and you like see the man behind the curtain and some of that stuff loses its magic. And so whenever you can listen to something, you're like, I don't know how he's doing that. I don't know what that is. It's it's super magical. And like, so she's a rainbow. My experience was she's a rainbow. I don't, I never listened to 40 licks. I barely listened to this album in the past when I was, when I was younger, when I was getting really into Rolling Stones. And this is so funny to me because like what I said with getting better earlier, where it was like a, on a TV commercial, I'm, I'm in the job that I do, like, like during the day communications and, and graphic design and things like that. And so for whatever, like our tech overlords have decided that the type of um, algorithmic marketing I'm going to get is like Adobe Photoshop and illustrator and stuff like that. And I swear to God, for the last six months, I have been getting served up this commercial, but it's this, it's this cool looking commercial with this like girl walking on a subway, looks sort of like 
photoshopping things with her mind to she's a rainbow and it's sick i love the song so much and honestly i had no idea when i put on satanic majesty's request this week that i was going to hear that song and that song and and like having read up on it now like brian jones is playing the mellotron just sort of like the really kind of rigid sounding piano like mm. sound it's an that's an that's a masterpiece of a song I got it. That's definitely one of the all-timer like piano runs. It, it, it's an all-timer for me, and I love that song. And something else that I, I didn't expect after being a little bit familiar with this album it is the song, the, the opening track, Sing This All Together, which obviously, I mean, come on, it pales a comparison to kicking off with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely, you know, Lonely Hearts Club Band. It does its job, though. It, does, but it feels I, very opening song-like. I, but I, I think some people's perception of it is like, all right, this is just, these are just generic psychedelic weirdo lyrics that are, you know, pretty basic or whatever. And what I found listening to this album over and over again, those words, they almost became like kind of a mantra of just like the more, more I listened to it and the more I heard Mick say them, you know, taken by themselves, read on a page, they don't mean a lot, but it was almost like a chanting and, and listening to it over and over and over again. I just kept feeling like it was taking on different shades of meaning and Sing This All Together is a kick-ass opening track. Just being a song, it's like an it's like an entry point. I don't know if I need eight minutes and thirty three seconds of it at track five, but yes, that is. I think that's definitely the weak the weak part of this album. Besides maybe Bill Wyman singing in Another Land, which is a classic, of like throwing Ringo a bone. Like, all right, let's have Bill sing a song. Um, (laughs) But they do redeem it by having Mick come in in the chorus, which I feel like is a a super triumphant kind of chorus. And I some so something that needs to be said about this album that needs to be said about the Rolling Stones that we haven't talked about very much at all on this podcast is the thing or one of the things that takes this album to a different level for me is Charlie Watts. And I think his drum playing is very underrated. And maybe even in a similar way to Ringo's in that if you listen to this album, um, you're not going to get a ton of flash or substance. You might not even notice the drums the first time through, but listen to it a couple of times and listen to the drums and you'll hear the rhythms and things that Charlie Watts playing. They both do the job of holding these psychedelic weird songs together, but also like experimenting a little bit too. And I think that his rhythm and his drumming on this album really is like the shoelaces, just like keeping this whole thing together. I'm excited to listen to it that way. Cause honestly, and in the case, it's probably true with both these albums. I probably paid less attention to Ringo and Charlie Watts on these two albums than I have the whole series. 
I think it's really because there's so much flourishes and stuff happening over the top of it, right? right? It's like it's it's back there. Well, and I think that's the greatness is that he didn't need to be the center of attention and he didn't need to he, he was content to just hold it together. And sometimes that's all you need when you have these massive personalities and Brian Jones being a malignant narcissist and uh, all of that stuff. And so I, I just, we haven't really talked about Charlie Watts much yet to this point, even though he's been doing some, some really good drumming on these. I, I want to give him some love. I like it. Um, all right. As we, as we wind down from this, um, I will say that if, if satanic majesties is the sort of like, uh, derivative version of Sgt. Pepper's, even with all of its beauty. Gomper is definitely the derivative version of Within You, Without You. Oh, yeah, definitely. Can we talk about Between the Buttons for just a second? Yeah, to you, I'm giving you full floor on Between the Buttons. I listened to it. I enjoyed it. I like it. I have the standout songs. I think it's completely insane that those two songs you mentioned were not on the British one. Just... Uh, yeah, I don't understand that. Um, I just want to say that Let's Spend the Night Together is an all-time party song. Just, it's great. you know, you you throw that song on and those opening boogie-woogie piano chords come on and, and people just like start moving, their feet start tapping. A lot, a lot of this album is just kind of whatever to me. It's, it's okay, it's, it's enjoyable, but it's not... Not something that's like, okay, I'm going to listen to this all the time. Although I I hadn't been super familiar with the song Who's Been Sleeping Here um, until deep dove into Between the Buttons. And I really like that one. I like Miss Amanda Jones as a kind of just like rocking barn burner. Yeah. Um, And yeah, other than that, it's a little forgettable. In, um, in its weird way, in its weird way, you have the Rolling Stones doing this thing previous to this, and then you have everything the Rolling Stones do after this, and this feels like like between the buttons and and uh, Satanic Majesties couldn't be more different. It's like this weird little like, what are we gonna do? Who are we gonna be? Type year it feels like. Yeah, that that's kind of the the Rolling Stones for like the past three years. Almost feel like they keep putting out these albums that they're like somehow have like three leftover amazing songs from their previous album and then write like nine more songs to like fill in an album. Um, And so the other, I like really, really like she smiled sweetly. That's a, that's a pretty great song. And I I think, I think it's a lot more solid than some of the the earlier releases from them from like 65 or or 66. Um, Like I think it's probably better than aftermath. I think it I think it falls victim to the format we've created for this podcast, honestly. Just like put out these two other very psychedelic albums and it's just, it's hard. It, it it's it's a different thing than that. It is a different thing, but I also feel like just having Let's Spend the Night Together and Ruby Tuesday on an album, it justifies anything else. You it does. Could... No, it's great. It's so good. It it does. And and honestly, like the the reality is that the format we've set for this podcast isn't the format in which we live our lives, you know? Damn right. And honestly, of all of these albums, like prior to undertaking this project, I probably listen to Flowers the most. <laughs> yeah, Flowers is great. Like, like, let's do like a one, two, three. You're about to hear a little clip from Lady Jane right now because it's so good. My sweet Lady Jane. My sweet Lady Jane. 
when I see you again. Your servant of I. Yeah. Yeah, it's got Lady Jane and Out of Time, Backstreet Girl. Does Flowers have does Flowers have sitting on a fence? Yeah, it's the last song on Flowers. It's uh, it's a perfect song. It's an amazing song. Uh, can we talk about Magical Mystery Tour real quick before yeah. we? Um, I yeah, think... buddy. I, I rented it on DVD and I watched it. Oh yeah, tell tell please do tell about oh. the. Speaking of bands disavowing things, we talked about movies as and and some of these things as like record label cash grabs and things like that. Um, Magical Mystery Tour looks like it was shot in one day. They drove this bus around, these songs played, and these people frolicked around on hills and stuff. And the Beatles are effortlessly charming and interesting and fun. And I think that you you don't need to script anything for them. They'll just do whatever and they're gonna be they're they're magnetic in that way. And uh that's what this looks like. It looks like this movie is nothing. We have these amazing, we have these good songs because these guys are incapable of writing uninteresting songs. It's otherwise just just a bunch of B-roll scrap pulled together to make a movie with this music and with a with a bizarre amount of Ringo and his super British mom. His super British mom is heavily involved in it. She gets matched up with a very British man on the bus at some point. They look like they get married out on a beach or something. It's, and that's when my kids walked into the room. It's really weird. And uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't see why it needs to exist, but I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. I think that was them really trying to make a concept album like thinking okay we're gonna make a concept album and we're gonna make a movie to go along with the concept album and it just didn't work and i think if i remember right one of the reasons that it had so much ringo in it is that the other beatles like pretty quickly just got fed up with the movie and we're just like this is stupid and what are we doing and ringo is such a good natured like jolly fellow that he just kept showing up and kept doing, you know, whatever they asked of him. And so I think that's why there's so much Ringo in it. But we, we had talked before when we drafted was sort of like, oh, 1967, you're getting, oh, you're, you're getting Sergeant Pepper's nice. Good for you. Oh, also Magical Mystery Tour. And, you know, I think we're being a little hard. If you're going to include these, this sort of, I, I don't know what you call, there, there was a version of the album that was just the soundtrack to the movie. I think it was it was only like four or five songs actually, and then they went back and they added these singles to it, and so, I mean, it's it's actually kind of amazing. Like you have, I am the walrus into Hello Goodbye, which Hello Goodbye is just love that song. Uh, Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane, Baby You're a Rich Man. That that's a hell of a, a fucking run for an album that is kind of like we were laughing about. Yeah, I think I, yeah, and you have All You Need Is Love. These are iconic Beatles songs. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, shut down 1967, and next week we're going to do 1968, which is White Album and Baker's Banquet. Oh, one one album each, although one of, one of them is a double double record. Um, I'll be representing the Beatles again and Ryan will have the Rolling Stones with Baker's Banquet and that's going to be fun. I think, can, I think. Can we cue in sympathy for the intro to sympathy for the devil right here? I feel like it's, 
I can yeah, hear it's it. Too. Coming. I can hear it. Give it. We'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, this was fun. Hey, um, search Beatles and Stones. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate, review it. All that stuff. Um, Email yeah. us. You have anything we'll to say about? You have anything to say about John Bonham? He's all right. I am. I wish he was still alive. Talented chap. Yeah, that's true. Um, all right. Well, excited to do it, and I'll see you next week. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.